and I look back, it's Phil Knight, and it's like, whoa, you know, hey, Phil, how you doing? He goes, good, and the first thing he says, why didn't we sign the kid with a big serve? You and Knock worked bef- together before? No, but we were in the same, um, obviously, in sports marketing, the same same team, so I think what's really cool is that we'll get to hear um, Knock's perspective on athletes, because he's been with athletes from day one, and um I'm really intrigued to ask him a lot about sports marketing, and obviously he's done his ha- he's had his hands in brand marketing, um, and those are two different, entirely different parts of the business. And so, I think it'll be really good to hear his perspective and his experiences there for sure. Knock. Oh, good to hear from you, man. Hey, likewise, likewise. How you guys been? Oh, you know, trying to do the best we can with uh, what the 2020 year has given us. <laughs> Tell you what, 2020 sucks, huh? <laughs> well, I'm glad you could be blunt about it. So let's just be real. Yes, it sucked for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, there's not much uh, good thing uh, that's happened 2020. We're just, I think we're all ready to move, you know, move past this. Uh, 100%, man. 100%. Um but yeah, man, we're appreciative that uh, you're you're you've given us some time to to be a part of this podcast. We're ecstatic because uh, no, I think you're our for, first. Have me on. Yeah, man, you're our, you're going to be our first kind of like sports marketing guru um, on this podcast. So it'll be good. Well, <laughs> well, hey, like I said, if you need to uh, scrape at the bottom of the barrel and need someone, I'm always there for you guys. <laughs> Uh, you're not at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> let's just be, we'll be, let's get real. <laughs> Cause you've done a lot of amazing things. And, um, I think we could start. So knock Mike Nakajima, a, a veteran at Nike. I think, um, we'd love to hear kind of like, we've always asked at the very beginning of our guests, like, kind of like your journey to like from college to how you got into Nike. Um, I know you've had your hands in sports marketing, majority of your, your career at Nike, but also brand marketing. Uh, but I think a lot of people um, put the two together as the same thing, and they're totally different. And I can't wait to hear that perspective of what your experiences have been specifically in sports marketing. So uh love to hear that too. Yeah. No, listen, I mean, uh, back in the day when there was no internet, no cell phones, uh, playing tennis, local college here in Portland State, need to get a job, right? Working, you know, selling shoes in a mall wasn't exactly where I wanted to launch my career. So, you know, you look at the Oregonian, you read, you know, the sports page from the beginning to the end. Then you read through the comics. Then you go through the obituaries. Then you go through the classifieds. And there you find Nike equal opportunity employer. Call this toll-free number. You call this toll-free number. And it's like, they literally just rattle off all these jobs over the phone. And you write it down as fast as you can. And then you head on over to the Nike employment office off of Murray. And you fill out applications. And I got a job at the employee store uh, as a part-time temporary employee. Which means if they didn't like the way you tied your shoes... That was enough excuse to cut you loose. So I was in a real thin thread just from the beginning. Um, and then you kind of work your way way up. And 
a couple years in, into it, I was still working part-time because I was going to college and finishing up school. I got invited to um, represent our retail group in, at the booth at the U.S. Open. And I was super stoked to be at the U.S. Open, considering the fact I was a tennis player and never been to the U.S. Open. I was super stoked and got a, got a chance to represent Nike. And from there, um, got to meet the guys who run tennis. So they invited me to another tennis event, which is called the Lipton at the time. And it's now currently called the Miami Open, which happens every year in March. And uh, they offered me the job. And someone told me once that, hey, don't don't accept the job on the spot. So I said, hey, can I just, uh, you know, think about it, get back to you in an hour. The guy says, no problem. So then I called my boss at the employee store and she says, can I can you give me an hour? So I said, all right, I'll, whatever. And an hour later, I had to find another phone because there was no cell phones. And Nike used to pass out these calling cards that you can use so you can call any from any payphone. And they call her back and and my manager says, um, just want to let you know that the our retail group is going to open these flagship stores and we're gonna call them Nike Towns. And I, I remember saying, Excuse me, what do you guys call them? Call them call them? And she says, Nike Towns. She's like, Oh, okay. She said, Well, I want you to manage our first one. And it's like I didn't know what Nike Town was. Of course, now hindsight's, you know, turned out to be a pretty nice store, and it's it certainly was a flagship for in many st- in many states in the U.S. and and uh, you kind of wonder where my my career would have gone had I accepted that position, but then I accepted the job in tennis. So that was probably 1990, and I've uh, been into tennis since. I got an opportunity to, you know, send product and sign athletes to negotiations, to managing teams. And and I did that for 26, 27 years. And when the thought of going to another Wimbledon or thought of the fact that you can sign an athlete in your sleep, you need new challenges. And that's when I decided to hang it up uh, in 2017. And it was perfect for me because it was exactly 30 years. And uh, I just needed to do something different. And somebody once said, it's like, God, you're leaving a job that's it's like one of the best in the world. And I, and I thought it was, and I certainly thought it was, you know, for many years. But there comes a time when you need to challenge yourself. There comes a time when you need to really look at you know, what's important in your life. And I had got my, this job when I was single and no kids. And when I left, I had three boys and, you know, my oldest was in college. So it got to be a point where, you know, when you miss the first words out of your kids and your, their first steps and first days of school, then there's so many milestones that you miss. And, uh, you know what, life's too short. You know, there might be, I, I may have missed some of those, a lot of those, but when it comes down to it, you need to spend more time with family because with the busiest point I was traveling, you know, 26 weeks, you know, a year, and that's too much when you have a family. So I made a career change and, and um, there's no looking back. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Cause I, I, I feel you specifically, cause I, I believe 
specifically for you, you were traveling probably like all four majors, including smaller tournaments and then activations, specific launches that request from per different categories. I mean, you're probably looking at what, 50 to 60% traveling at that time. And, and I totally understand because you were, again, three boys, family. That's tough for sure. Yeah, it's tough because once again, you know, nothing happens in Portland, which means something happens in tennis, you're on the road. You know, there's been many times where I had to go back downstairs in the, in the, in the hotel and say, excuse me, can you tell me what room I'm at? Because after a while, you kind of lose track of where, where my room is. And God knows I've been knocked on so many wrong hotel doors. I thought it was my room and it's not. If I was a floor off or something like that. That's when you have to really start thinking about, oh, my God, maybe I've been doing this too long. <laughs> Nock, I want to, like, talk about some of the early days, if you don't mind, just kind of like when you were starting out in tennis and you had this opportunity to really kind of be a part of the grassroots um, aspect of building up Nike Tennis and its, you know, its presence um, with young tennis athletes. Um, there's obviously been a handful of those athletes who have gone on to become really amazing, huge stars and would love to hear any stories you can tell about you, uh, seeing th those athletes at an, at an early age. Yeah. So, you know, back in 93, 94, um, uh, Phil basically said, Hey, what, we need to go out there and sign the, the, the number one American player. Well, the number one American player happened to be the number one player in the world. And that guy's name was Pete Sampras. So we went out there and got him. But the fact of the matter is we needed to go younger. We need to go start going much, much younger. So we started what's called the Nike Junior Tour, which was uh, really came up, became a, a world-class tennis event for under 12 and under 14 best players in the world. So from there, we found a kid named Rafael Nadal. So we had him, you know, we saw him when he was 12. And he won it when he was 12, 13, and 14. The kid was a beast. Then, obviously, so we signed him. So we, you know, we had Rafa since he was 12 years old. And then one day, one of the agents from IMG came up to me and said, hey, listen, there's this, this girl we want you to really look at. I think she could be terrific. And he gave me an entire portfolio of this athlete. Went to uh, Bradenton to the Voluntary Academy and watched a little girl named Maria Sharapova. She was 11 years old. She could only say like six words in English. So when I met her, you know, we had sent her a, a, a huge, you know, uh, box, bunch of boxes of Nike products. So she was wearing our stuff and went to go watch this private practice. And she comes up to me and she says, I don't like your socks. So, you know, and I'm looking at it, it's like, the first thing you tell me is the fact that the socks that we sent you didn't like. Here's a girl that didn't have anything before, but she already knew what she wanted in life. And, uh, I, you know, literally watch her hit six balls and go, you know, she's just, this kid's special. This kid's going to be good. And we had put her under contract since she was 11 years old. So we have to start young, right? Because when you go 15, 16, 17, everybody in the industry will know who these kids are. So we wanted to go young. So by having athletes like Rafa and Maria early on, it really helped us, you know, making sure that our future was secure with, you know, guys always competing in this, in the second weekend of a grand slam. So 
of course, it, back in the day, we had we signed Andre Agassi when he was young, and you know we sent him a boatload of product too at the time to Boletari's. And one day, when you know things are quiet and Andre was retired, and I asked him why he chose us when he was 15 years old, when we weren't that big back then, but we were kind of a becoming to be a really cool brand. Adidas was around. Reebok was sending him boatload of stuff. And Andre looked at me and said, do you want me to tell you the real story or what I tell people? I said, Andre, tell me both. He says, well, first of all, what I tell people is the fact that we, I chose Nike because Nike was the best, best product, fit me well, comfortable, and quite frankly, it was the best looking stuff out there. I said, okay, well, that's nice that you told people that. I said, why did you, okay, re really, why did you choose us at the beginning? He says, well, first of all, you guys sent us a lot, sent me a lot of product. And the fact that I could sell your product so much more than I can sell Reebok and Adidas gear, I had a little money left over for me to buy other <laughs> stuff. And therefore, I picked you guys. <laughs> so there are different reasons why people picked us. But at the end of the day, I think we have having certain athletes under uh, the Nike umbrella really put us on the map. And for us to become the, the biggest tennis company in the world to this day, I think it's you know, you have to attribute to the fact that we get these kids young and make them love the brand. And I think that really helped. And that's probably no different in any other category. Yeah. So I, I want to kind of stick with that topic with, with when you guys are signing these um, young athletes, you got to get to know like their, their parents and so forth. And um, you know, during the sports marketing era, knock like, could you like describe, the importance of relationship building during that time and even today, obviously, um, and, and how and why it was so important to get, number one, the deals done, but also the buy-in from the athletes. Well, back, back in the day, relationship was everything. I mean, it was everything, right? I mean, you have to like get to know these athletes. You got to get to know the parents, the agents, the brothers and sisters, the influencers, the physios, the trainers i mean you know some of the some of the players had all those and you had to really you know get to know these guys and i think that's no different it is today the main difference is the money is huge now so if you're a young up-and-comer and is touted as one of the best then the money's there obviously the guys at the top of the game He's got money. So those are the two areas that we focused on. Everybody in between, there was no money for him. So somebody who's a journeyman who's been top 20 or 30 in the world but never won a slam and approaching, you know, upper 20s to 30s, there was no money for him. So we really focused on those two areas. And, of course, now, I mean, everybody, I mean, listen, everybody's money's green. Right, Adidas, Reebok, Uniqlo, Nike, Asics, New Balance, everybody's in the game. So you have to realize, one, relationship still counts. Two, the product, the array of product, the coolness of the product, the, the sportswear aspect of the product, which is encompassing their lifestyle, not only on court, but off, off court is super important. And Nike offers that. And when we go, we go after athletes, one of the things that we're so good at is we tap into other categories 
and we have other athletes in other categories call the athlete, right? So you can, as you can imagine, you're an 18 year old player that we think he's going to be the next greatest thing in the world. And you have somebody like a Kobe or you have John McEnroe's of the world, just calling the kid and say, join the family. That is a powerful, you know, artillery to have because these people, they never imagined thinking or talking about so-and-so from Nike calling you to join the family. It's a, it's a super powerful tool to have. And Nike will make sure do that. And we certainly have done it for other categories as well. And that's the power of the brand, right? You got cool product and you got great athletes and you have to use all of that. And there hasn't been many times where we felt like we could not get an athlete, you know, because if we really wanted an athlete, just about, you know, nine out of 10 times, we're able to get them. And that's the power of the brand. So let me ask you this, where out of that nine out of 10, how did you guys handle failure in the sense of not getting that one athlete? What did you guys do to like prepare, like prepare your guys self to say, okay, then who, how do we try to still connect with that athlete or do we move on? Okay. So give you an example. I've got a few examples, but let's start with one. Uh, late nineties. We have, a, there was an athlete by the name of Martina Hingis. Okay. She won some slams from Switzerland and she was the number one player in the world. So we wanted to really court her, so to speak, right? Send her some really cool stuff and talk to her. And we have, you know, the right people talking to her. And one thing I remember her telling me is, why should I sign with you when everybody is with you? Okay. And that made me realize that Nike at the time had so many athletes. You opened a Sports Illustrated magazine, every page, we were on it. From NCAA football to NFL to tennis to basketball to football to soccer, every sport, we were all over it. And we got to a point where people were tired of seeing our brand, our logo, okay? And when somebody said that, well, Nike is the brand that, you know, the shoes that my dad used to wear. I think Nike as a brand had to really rechange or re-image themselves to really focus on quality over quantity and make the brand cool again. Because when Under Armour came along, that became a little bit for a time being a little bit of a hot brand because, hey, listen, you know, it's it's a diff something different and kids wanted to be unique and everybody had Nikes on. So we really had to cut back on our athletes to make sure that when somebody athletes notice that, you know, when Martina says, every time I'm playing doubles, I'm the only one not wearing Nike. And I like that. So that made us realize that, you know what, we have too many athletes, you know, and I think some every category probably felt that way a few times in our lifetimes that, you know, felt like, you know what, we need to cut back. because. No one's going to say no to wearing our product to a point where we're saturating the market. Everybody had it on. So that was one, one example. Second example was I was personally courting the kid named Andy Roddick who never wore our product. And I've always felt like he was going to win a grand slam. And I thought Wimbledon would be the first one he'd win. He ended up winning the U S open and he really wanted to be with us. Right. 
problem with that, with that is we're such a small category. And if everybody is not in sync, we cannot go forward with a decision, right? So I liked Andy Roddick. My boss didn't, you know, and that became a sore point to a point where we did not sign um, the athlete. And But I knew it was going to come back to haunt me because I was, you know, really at the time largely managing the North America business. And Andy Roddick was the best player in North America and certainly one of the best in the world. And so I made sure that I documented everything just because I didn't want to come back and bite my butt that I, why I did not sign it. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, a few days later, I'm working at my desk and somebody comes into the office and sits in my guest chair and I look back, it's Phil Knight. And it's like, Whoa, you know, Hey Phil, how you doing? He goes, good. And the first thing he says, why didn't we sign the kid with a big serve that, you know, try to avoid it, you know, the next time because there aren't many athletes that I really felt like we missed, you know, and certainly Andy was somebody I really wanted to have. And uh, unfortunately we were not able to get it, but Hey, you move on. You ended up winning only one slam. If you would have had multiple slams, maybe I would have left Nike earlier. And unfortunately, it probably wasn't because I wanted to leave you because they wouldn't they would want me out of there. So it's I love hearing about Phil's involvement in the process. And, you know, I think some folks would know that Nastase was one of the first athletes that Nike signed to an endorsement contract. I think it was like 72 or something. So really early on. Um, it seems like Phil kind of had an affinity for tennis, tennis athletes and, you know, started with McEnroe through the years. And a lot of them had that kind of like Nike sort of spirit. They were a little bit kind of, you know, sort of outside the norm. Can you speak a little bit to that and just sort of like your experience around that? Was there a kind of Nike tennis athlete that you guys were working for? Yeah. So when it came to signing athletes, yes, Phil was super involved with everything that we did, you know, and that's something that I think it's pretty um, obvious to every category. We try not to tap into that as as much as we can simply because I know that it wouldn't be looked upon, you know, greatly with people in between us and Phil. But tennis is one of those small categories which we really needed to um, get all the help we can get. You know, the joke around Nike for the longest time is that um, running is this category that we are, are grassroots and this is how we started. Basketball is the category that makes us the most money. Tennis is the category, you know, it's the sport that Phil Knight likes to play, you know, and, you know, and we took a lot of flack for that. But at the same time, if it wasn't for Phil's involvement, we wouldn't have had, we wouldn't have McEnroe, we wouldn't have had Agassi, we wouldn't have had you know, Sampras, you know, and chances are we wouldn't have had Federer and we wouldn't have had, we would have renewed Nadal and we certainly wouldn't have gotten Serena. So if you think about all that, those are some of the greatest athletes that Nike's has ever had. You know, a few years ago, I saw a top 12 list of Nike athletes and almost half of them were tennis athletes. So from a heritage standpoint, um, tennis is always been something that we we can hang our hats on with superstars right because tennis is a sport that you can play year-round right the season is a year-round year season okay it's not just three months like other sports secondly men and women are regarded as equals in the sport 
Serena, by winning Wimbledon, is going to get the same amount as her male counterpart, which a lot of sports can't say that. And three, because we get to costume our athletes, right, people become very recognizable. Okay, Roger Federer does not play with a helmet, so you can't really see what this kid looks like, right? He, they've got a very familiar face. So anywhere in the world, Roger Federer walks around, you know, Cairo to Rio, Rio to Beijing. They're going to recognize who he is. There are certain athletes that may be huge in the U.S., but if they walk around some of those places, they may not be recognized. So tennis became a really brand ambassador for Nike, and and the fact that you know we promote both on and off the court, you know, sports. We're promoting the sports, sportswear as well as the tennis became a a really calling call, call for our, our tennis athletes, and that was also a bargaining chip for us to use. And certainly, Nike was able to sign somebody like Naomi Osaka because she likes. The, the, the off-court product that we have. So, I mean, just because, once again, you know, it comes down to the power of the brand. And Phil was an athlete guy, you know, and so he really helped push in making sure that, you know, the athletes that we have is the best and really personifies who Nike as a brand is. Because there are a lot of great athletes that we don't have. Part of it is because their attitude really didn't match what Nike was, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, th I, I totally agree with that. And kind of like leading towards the stories you've given, like it sounded like, you know, we always said at Nike, it's always the voice of the athlete, right? Mm -hmm. and, and moving towards that, like, can you tell us a time where um, I, I, a lot of our c consumers, I'll say, or audience don't really know the life of a sports marketer. It, it's like you're the leader for the athlete that represents and and you have to work cross categorically with every every function. Um, could you tell us like what that day in life would look like for you at the time? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a little bit, a lot of lots of myths about sports marketing, right? So when I'm used to hire people in my group, first thing I ask is, what do you think we do? Right? And some people. You, <laughs> You think they do their homework, right? Well, you hang out with the athletes and, you know, just do stuff with them. And and it's like, what? <laughs> you see athletes. We are the conduit to the athletes. I get. Okay, that is what we are. Okay, but we don't see Serena every single day. Okay, you have to realize that what we do is promote the Nike brand through our assets, right? Whether that be an athlete or event or or, or team or so forth. So we have to really realize that what we do, okay, is promote our brand, you know, by making sure that our athletes wear the right product, right product, right place at the right time. You know, somebody asked me, it's like, well, how often do, you know, the costuming changes? So let me tell you, it's like you start January with Australia, brand new outfit. Okay, then you go get into March with Miami and Indian Wells, brand new outfit. Then you go to European Clay in April and May, brand new outfit. French Open in May, brand new outfit. Okay, Wimbledon in July, all white, brand new outfit. U.S. Open Series, pre-U.S. Open, brand new outfit. U.S. Open, August, brand new outfits. Holiday, immediately after U.S. Open, brand new outfit. You're talking six or seven different seven or eight, you know, different 
times where we get to dress them however we want to, so to speak, and make sure the product looks great. Now, the, the key is to making sure that the product that the athletes are wearing are in the stores. So when Rafa comes out on an outfit, you know, it's Australian, Australian Open or U.S. Open, and you want to buy it, it's got to be available globally, right? And that is... Easier said than done because this machine called Nike does not move very fast. The product cycle is 18 months long. And it's <laughs> very difficult to make sure that guys are carrying the product, you yep. know, because if it's not, the system's broken. And so we are at the beginning of, of that product cycle, aside from the, obviously the design, the production. Once the product hit, you know, you know, hits on the athletes, Everything has to be making sure that, you know, distributed to the right product. And that for us, that's the end of our cycle. But then for Nike is making sure the distribution is accurate globally. For us, once again, you know, it starts from, you know, the designers to athlete input to product testing to fabric testing to it's in the contract. We have certain dates that we got to, you know, hit to make sure that the athletes gets to test the product and, gives us the thumbs up, you know, for the product before, um, before it goes to the market and make sure that it's uh, distributed globally. So we have, there's a lot of legwork to be had before the athlete actually gets on the court because a lot of times, you know, we fail, you know, um, doing something that is not okay or the product wasn't up to par and, and we've had, issues with production and we have issues with product delamination and we i've ran through it all and if you've been in sports marketing long enough you'll run through every single one of them to a point where it's like why am i even doing this this sucks but you get you hope that you get better every time you make a mistake and you know the whole point is that you just don't make the same mistake again yeah i'd just like to like kind of jump on that because you know, we sort of take for granted that listening to the voice of the athlete does take a lot of work, uh, requires a lot of work on behalf of the athlete. And to you talking about all those product meetings and all that product testing, and there's lots of inter <clears throat> interviews and feedback required, um, you know, especially with someone like Federer and Dow, they have their own lines, you know, they've got apparel as well as footwear. Um, how is that on behalf of the athletes? Is the athletes really like they appreciate that? Or did you ever have any that were like, guys, I can't, this is too much time required for this process? Like, what was the general consensus there? Well, for the most part, Jesse, it's, it's in their contract, right? Guys like Rafa and Roger, it's in their contract that we have to make exclusive products for them because there's royalties attached to them, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, what you call, if you call tennis PK polo and Roger wears it versus Federer PK polo and Roger wears it, there's a different amount that you owe to someone like a Roger. Okay, so it, certainly it's in a contract. Secondly, Contrary to what people believe, athletes do not, you know, like make us do what they want to wear. They can say, hey, these are the pieces I like. I like you guys to be inspired by this and we'll take it. Serena is very good at that. She'll, she'll cut out pieces in, you know, a magazine. And I've even gone shopping in downtown, you know, London with her so I could get a little inspired. And it's like my, it was one of the longest three hours of my day but you get to know 
her likes and dislikes. And, you know, you can bring that back to the, the designers because it's important. Right. So, yes, you do need to do, listen to the voice of the athletes because they have to like what they wear. Because if, it's like no different than you and I. We feel good with the pieces we put on. And therefore, hey, you know, the day is a lot. You're a lot happier. Then if you were to force to wear something you don't want, you wear certain clothes because you like it. It makes you feel good. And it's no different than them. And for them, they have to wear it for a certain amount of time. Like, you know, I mean, I've been had conversations like Roger saying, is there any way I can, you know, change outfits? And I've had to wear this for like two and a half straight months. Well, it's in the contract. So what we may do is we'll accessorize it differently with different wristbands and different color socks or something like that. So in his mind, it's a different outfit. But the actual pieces that we're selling, especially the tops and shorts and shoes, are the same. So you can always try to come to a compromise with regards to athletes. You know, because athletes will push. They want this. They want that. Okay. If every single one of the answers is yes, you can have that. You can do that. My kid can have my job, do my job, okay? <laughs> the, the real key is to be able to say no without them being pissed off at you. That's what it comes down to, you know? So <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> sometimes it's not easy. Nope. But, hey, as is with your kids, you have to find a compromise where everybody's happy. That's awesome. I kind of want to go back to Nike days again, Mike, um, just to talk about like you've gained some valuable experiences throughout the tenure there. And I want to kind of speak about leadership. We ask about that's a key topic of a lot of our discussions with a lot of our guests is leadership. Um, could you explain like the benefits of the leadership that you gained as well as what you were trying to emulate at Nike and even today now what you're doing? Yeah, you know, when I started at Nike at the employee store and wanted the job, you know, really get a job here and there and reached out to many people for informational interviews, right? And I'm sure to some extent you probably guys did the same thing. And some people were super willingly and some people were not as much. And when somebody somebody was really willing to talk to you, and I've always said, said to myself that, you know, when when it's – if it becomes me to be able to do something like that, I want to make sure to be there for the, for the next generation of athletes, you know, um, employees. And I still do that today. You know, I get calls from Nike employees and people that want to work for Nike. And obviously it's tough, but you know, there's certain things I think it's, it's a must do. And I explain them. That's going to help your chances of landing a job at Nike, but more, more so than that within the group that I used to work for, you have an opportunity for, for you, you know, to pass on your experience, you know, because when you're dealing with athletes, inevitably you're going to find some pitfalls, right? And that's how you learn. But if you can learn from it, and certainly you can warn people about it, that, hey, if you do this, it's going to happen. If you do that, that's going to happen. Just don't let it happen, you know, to you kind of a thing. And making sure that they're more successful and they're a lot more successful at doing the job than when you were at that stage. You know, but that goes without saying to not just our group, but some of the product people in development, 
and design. And what you want to do is make sure that you have the tennis knowledge, which means, you know, you have to, you know, sometimes what you say is not very popular, but, you know, you have to kind of look after your athletes a little bit as well. So give you an example, you know, we have, you know, had some designers come and go and some of the designers that we've had were, you know, oh my gosh, you know, they started in Italy and they have this fashion degree and they did this for this company, that company, and it comes with unbelievable accreditations. And first thing this person does is come up with this beautiful warm up with no pockets, right? Function before fashion, right? You know, and you have to like talk to the, the staff about how tennis player works and I know the sport, they may know fashion. We have to come to a compromise. And, you know, those are all learning phases that, once again, these guys in design looked at me like, are you telling me what I can and can't do? And for me, it's just letting them know that what works and what doesn't, right? Because I think sports marketing has always been a real, you know, we tend to grow roots at sports marketing. If you Go across all categories at Nike and who's been there longest. Chances are sports marketing guys been there longer than anybody else. And part of it is the fact that, you know, you once you work with athletes, that becomes a, a big part of your life and you don't want to change. Two, quite honestly, it's a little bit of a dead end job, right? If you're in, in product, you can go to factories, you can go to marketing, you can do this, this and that. Sports marketing, hey, where else are you going to go after that? So, you know, my counterparts, you know, whether it's Bill Keller or Bill Frechette or, you know, they, they, they were there for a long time. I think BK still there. I think Otis, you know, left. Uh, but I think that a lot of people, for the most part, tend to grow roots, you know. And so hopefully if that happens, that you want to make sure that the next generation, when you do leave, don't make the same mistakes that, you know, you made in making sure that you mentor them and make sure that you're in a better place than than when you started. And I think that's important for any category by sports marketing, especially when you have many years under your belt in current sports marketing and tennis. Somebody's been there longest, maybe been there four years, maybe. I mean, it's sad that, you know, my years of there is more than all of them combined currently. That's how new that the staff is over there. So we just want to make sure that, you know, you just got to mentor them, coach them through because a lot of the pitfalls that I went through. I just don't want them to go through that same, same uh, mistakes that I've made. Yeah. Solid. So knock, I want to, you know, you had started the conversation talking about some of the decision-making behind stepping away from Nike. Can you talk to us about that decision? I mean, it sounds like, you know, you felt like there wasn't a lot of room for you to move in a different direction or grow. Um, but I would love to just kind of hear about just sort of your thought process behind that, because, you know, almost 30 years is a long time to just sort of like move on from. So it must've been a big decision. It was Jesse, because you know what? I mean, you can, you know, if you talk to somebody who's been there a long time, you can think about, you know, what's it like to be not at Nike or, uh, you can think about it. Like I said, you can certainly talk to your friends about it, but it's another thing to actually pull the trigger and do it right to do just actually leave and it for me it was an opportunity in french open 2017 i was in paris and serena was expecting and big part of my job is to try to you know 
get Serena, get ready for number 24, which would have broke, you know, tied the record for all-time Grand Slam championships and all that. And when Serena wasn't there, I had a little bit of time to kind of reflect. And to and got to a point where I just don't want to do this anymore. You know, I never thought that I got to a point where I didn't want to do it anymore. I've always been the last three, four years, it's like, God, you know what? What's it like to do something else? And it became a lot more clear to me that, hey, you know, you've been there, done it. When you can sign athletes in your sleep, and that's what we do in my job, then it's time for you to think about doing something else. And that's where I was at. You know, when you guys in the office wasn't even born when you started, it Of course, I get the, you know, Knox the historian in our group. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's when you kind of start to realize, well, maybe I should start thinking about doing something else. And, and once again, these are things that kind of goes through your mind. Um, And when you have time to think about, you know, life's too short to be doing the same thing over and over. Because going to Wimbledon, it should be on the bucket list for any sports fans. Okay, just like Super Bowl and World Series and going to Wimbledon in the you know, being a, in center court Wimbledon. Well sh- you know, when you're there, been there twenty five plus times, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> you know, after a while decide to cut the cord and do it, it was became a lot easier uh, to do. But one of the things that I, I've done, you know, thought about doing is to teach, right? Teach the next, you know, group of sports marketers or what have you. So I was thinking about teaching down in the University of Oregon, right? The, uh, the Warsaw and all that. I'm sure we talked to some of the people already. And as I was leaving, I called every one of my athletes. It took me like a week to contact every single one of my athletes and tell them I was leaving. And one of the athletes was Andre Agassi, and I, whom I worked with for – long time and i and he says not what are you gonna do now and i said i don't know i'm thinking but you know i've been offered to teach but i don't know i've never taught before is those are my words and and immediate he goes bullshit how long you been there 30 years you don't think you taught enough people while you were there for 30 years you'd probably teach somebody every single day for last several years and not to mention you're a father you teach your kids Every single day, you're t- you have been teaching and you're still teaching to this day. So don't tell me you don't know how to teach. And he was like, it was almost like a scolding. And maybe down inside, I knew that I could do it. But sometimes, you know, you know, you could do it. But if somebody tells you, then also always confirms with you, confirms with you that, oh, my gosh, you're right. So I, I taught a class, you know, which was like super enjoyable. And to this day, I still stay in touch with some of the uh, students there. And that was a graduate level course. And I never thought I could do it. But for me, that was a life bucket list item is to teach. And I got a chance to do that. So that was an amazing experience. That's awesome. So could you give some advice to these younger, hungry um, future stars, I would say, in the opportunity. Let's say, for example, if someone reached out to you, knock and said, hey, I want to be in sports marketing. Um, I want to work with the athletes specifically in tennis, but I'm actually a track and field guy. But I love tennis as a, as a, as a sport. Um, I understand it. I know it. 
how do I get into Nike? What kind of advice could you give that that type of person or type of uh, you know to help them figure out that first step into Nike or a brand like Nike? Well, JP, I had a, just such a call this morning. You know, this gal is a <laughs> senior in college, and obviously, you know, she plays on the tennis team. And she told me, believe it or not, that through LinkedIn, she talked to like 500 people at Nike. Right? Like, oh, wow. Wow. Right? Um, so I said, so I'm, I'm like the 501st call you made? <laughs> <laughs> but no. But I think, um, I think the important thing is, first of all, you don't ever want to put your eggs in that one basket. Right? Because tennis is such a small business unit compared to the grand behemoth of Nike. Tennis business globally is a rounding error for Nike. Okay, so as big as the athletes are, the business is so small and the group is so small. What I told her is that if you get to Nike, whatever it is, get your foot in the door, you need to create what's called a North Star, right? What do you want to be five years from now? What do you want to be 10 years from now? Okay, just because that is there doesn't mean that's where you're going to end up. But you always have to have one, right? We always look at, okay, what am I doing to get myself prepared for the next level or the next job? So the next several jobs could be the same band level, same pay, or even less pay. But if you look at it as if you're doing your homework and getting the experience that you need to get to that North Star, you never look at it as a step down because you are doing your homework to get ready. Okay, But that doesn't mean you're going to end up there. If you may go into another route that you may enjoy being and you're super successful and therefore you take another route, hey, if that happens, you change a North Star, you know, to another category or to another division or another, you know, you you can do that. But I think it's important to know where you want to head it. But at the beginning, you don't want to sit there and say, this is what I want to do. Because Nike doesn't quite work that way. Not many people goes after their first job that they ever want to do is the one you got. It doesn't happen. Right. They're, you know, certainly I'm not saying that never, but. For the most part, it doesn't happen. You got to get your foot in the door. You got to get the experience. You get to meet the people. You get to. You need to do some work before you get to where you need to. You know where you need to go, and sometimes you end up somewhere else, and that's all right. You know, but it's important to know that you need to enjoy what you do, and just because you want to be in tennis, that doesn't mean that's where you're going to end up. But when you do get in a position to interview for such positions, you got to be ready. You got to be ready because you get to, you know, interview for that position once. It's not going to come again because chances are if you don't get it, somebody's going to be in that position for at least two or three years. By then, you'll be doing something else. So just do your homework, right? When I used to hire, I said, listen, it doesn't matter if five people are applying for the job or 500. I want to talk to five people. Those five people are going to be, you know, somebody I'll be selecting from. And I want to make sure that these five people are really, really prepared to do the job. And I want to make sure that I get the right person. So I'm telling this gal, you just need to be in that five. So do your homework, right? You don't want to be, you know, one of five people who dress nice and, and had a great resume. Okay, what, what are you going to do that sticks out, that's different? You know, I remember being in a panel for a PLM position for tennis footwear. And this lady took me into the adjacent 
conference room and she did a product presentation to all future products. She got a product, you know, somebody from product gave her some product and she did a full presentation of future product before the interview and she did not get the job. So it is not easy to get the job that you want. You need to work towards it. But when you do get the opportunity, be ready. You want to make sure that you don't ever want to leave anything on the table and sit there and go, oh, my gosh, I wish you said that. Be prepared. And I think, you know, and also have to be, you may not get a job first 10 times, but you need to be diligent. You know, you need to keep trying because so many people that I've mentored in the past end up getting a job after five, six, seven, ten times. And now they're, they're killing it in Nike. So, you know, you just can't give up. You know, it's a tough company to get in. And we all know that. We're all privileged to work there. And I certainly couldn't get a job there now. But I <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was just telling Jesse today, I was like, man, I hate failure. I hate people saying no to me. And I hate people saying no thanks. But I got to I gotta suck it up with my big boy pants and just keep on going. <laughs> right? I tell you what, it's not easy. No. <laughs> But I think, you know, a lot of people have to be diligent and keep at it. You know, if you think that the job's going to land on a, on a, on a silver platter, it, you're, you're dreaming. You're going to have to go out there and get it. My kid got a job at Nike earlier this year. And, you know, granted, myself, my wife, and my brother, who worked in sports marketing for almost 30 years himself, you know, it's like, you know, we give him a bunch of names, but I told him to sit at the cafeteria, meet as many people that will lead to more people and make contact. He was fortunate that he lived here, lives here, and he just to drive down Murray to get to, to Nike. But not many people are fortunate to live in the same city as Nike. But you know what? If you have the means to come out here and meet people and those people meet, you know, become more and more, more, more of your contacts. It's all, you know, all to your advantage. So you do need to make the effort. I think that's important. Absolutely. Not. can you tell us a little about, uh, about the things that you're involved in now and some of the potential, like, interests that may you may have found that you weren't really aware of that when you were working at Nike, things that you kind of opened your eyes to in the last three years? Yeah, so one of, you know... Ironically, when you leave Nike, thanks to like LinkedIn and stuff like that, you get to connect with some former other Nike, you know, uh, employees. So I've got, you know, pre-COVID, I had three things going on. Two out of the three were with former Nike colleagues. So one of the things I'm currently doing is a company out of Australia, and I'm working with a former Nike guy who's, you know, Olympic medalist, NCAA champion in track and field and ran the sports marketing, uh, global sports marketing and running for Nike. So we're doing what we call the baseline testing for athletes. So, you know, when you do that, as for instance, you know, if you are, JP, how old are you? 40, 41. 41. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so you work out, let's just say you have a personal trainer and you want to get lots of work in and, you know, you you know getting stronger. And I said, JP, okay, so you feel strong? And you say, of course you are. All right. Well, how much stronger than were you six months ago? And you may go, hmm, I'm stronger. I don't know how much. Okay, well, you've been running and all that. Okay, you're faster than you were six months ago. And they go, of course I am. Oh, how much faster are you? So now this company does these testings to self-improvement, right? So you can test yourself today in six months or four months from now. If you're working hard, you want to see improvement. And you get snap snapshots of time. 
of these testing to see how much what you're working at is working. And the second part of that is that it's, this company, what it does is does a talent identification pool. We've tested over 35,000 kids in South Africa and 35,000 kids in India because they, they want more athletes, elite athletes. So you putting these kids through testing and these kids that do well in every one of these tests, they handpick them and put them in sports so they can create better athletes. So believe it or not, one of the things that we were going to do is to test Nike employees. Right, because a lot of these guys, they're vicariously living through their, you know, their their youth, and you can test Nike, and Nike was going to pay for this, that you can go out there and get yourself tested. So every four months, you can like be get retested and see how much stronger you are, and you can go online and test. Okay, well, how my how do I fare against other forty one years at Nike, or in the city, or in the state, or around the country, or around the globe, or even test yourself against results of Olympic athletes. So you can see how you fare. So that's one of the things we're we're doing now. We're going to test the the, the employees of, of the the Mac Club as well. So that's something that we're working on currently. And we've also started a new company. You know, my former Nike colleagues of my I don't know if you remember a guy named Ian Hamilton. Ian hired me into tennis sports marketing in 1991. And uh, Steve Miller, who ran Global Sports Marketing. Uh, current uh, b back in the day with Nike, we started a company about insuring bonuses for athletes. So, you know, if there is an athlete that there's, you know, um, going to break a world record and you can insure that. If you're signing an athlete, you can offer them much higher bonuses and you can insure it in case the athlete hits and you pay a small premium. So Nike doesn't need this business. When I was at Nike, people would come in and say, hey, would you like to insure, business, uh, insure bonuses that you're paying for Serena and Rafa and so forth? I didn't because Nike when you, Nike had the money. So when I always budget, okay, Serena's going to win two slams. Rafa's going to win one slam and Roger's going to win another slam. Okay, you put that in the budget, it automatically appears. Not every company is like that. Right, Adidas and Asics and everybody else, they are, you know, they're not quite like Nike. And therefore, we work with some of the uh, some of the smaller companies, sign athletes, as well as it helps with events. You know, they promote uh, an event. So the athlete will play the event. And if they do well, they double their bonuses or their, their prize money. You can ensure that. So if you get an athlete that comes because they can get more out of this tournament, better athletes they're going to get more butts and seats and certainly you're going to get more sponsors so opportunities are there for you know uh, companies or athletes or management companies clubs teams governing bodies wherever there's a financial risk you know we help them out in sports and entertainment business so it's a little bit different way of thinking we have you know about a dozen people that are specialized in different sports because i love basketball but i don't know anything about the business of basketball so somebody you know that we have that is specifically know the business of basketball and have the relationship, and we uh, we work with some of these companies. So it's a different mindset because we're you know appointed representatives of Lloyd's of London. So we have a lot of brokers and underwriters looking at some of the creative ideas that we have, and they give us a premium, and they take it or not, don't take it. So it's it's a different kind of business. But I enjoy I love it, I love it though. Yeah. Companies. No, I love that because it's different perspective. And I think 
it's a good opportunity to, like you said, not everybody's like Nike who has the cash flow to do those kind of, you know, someone's going to have a good year and win more than just one or two majors. And that's where you, the insurance is going to have to be. Right. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so last question, because yeah. you've given us so much of your valuable time. No, no worries. We, we usually ask our, our, our guests as well as like, if you can give yourself one piece of advice, your younger self, what would it be? Well, I think the advice give people is you always got to be humble, right? Because I was fortunate, as with you guys, Nike gave me an opportunity to do some really cool things and go to places that I've never thought I'd go on my own, let alone numerous times, some places. And it was an amazing opportunity that I had, and I enjoyed it. But you have to be humble about you know the opportunities they're given because knowing that it was a job, but I enjoy it. So the, really the advice is you've got to enjoy what you do. Because if you don't, you know, they talk about if you enjoy it, then you don't feel like you're working, you know, at all. And that's essentially what everybody's, you know, should be is to get up in the morning and say, you know, I can't wait to go to work. That's the kind of job everybody should have. It's not about the paycheck. It's never about the corner office or any of that. It's about work-life balance and enjoy what you do. So, the, you know, the, really the advice is to... You know, just really think about the job that you go after. You've got to enjoy it. You know, then you never work another day in your life. And that's something that I did it for many years. And I was fortunate that I was able to do that. Now in my second you know, career, I'm doing it again. And I hope that everybody, you know, can do the same thing. Because then, you know, hey, you're living a much happier life. 100%. Oh, it's good advice. It's really good advice, especially for the past year or so to be doing something that you enjoy is really a big thing. Yeah. Mike, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, just love your insights and your attitude and appreciate the time. Yeah, seriously. Um, Wealth of knowledge, man. John and Jesse, always a pleasure. Always, uh, you know, and listen, you know what? You guys have been my friends. And Jesse, you've helped me countless times at Nike. You know, I needed this. I needed that. And you were so good. And I enjoy working with you. So I miss that. And I do miss the camaraderie that we have with Nike. But you know what? Sometimes, you know, all good things must come to an end. And hopefully another door opens. So, you know, I think we wish well on, on everybody through this pandemic. And hopefully uh, we'll come out of it. And we'll be stronger than ever. Absolutely. Thank you, Nock. Thanks, Mike.